Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, looks like it's about time, if not past time, for another Bible Geek, and uh, I have the time to oblige, so here I am eager to chomp down on these uh, questions I've received. Uh, loads of fun, everyone. And, uh, let's see, uh, first one is from Ostino in Verba, hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he says, hey, governing Bobby of Bible geekery. Hey, that's me. Uh, another question for you. I have greatly enjoyed your responses so far, as well as the shows. My question today is, what are your thoughts on the interactions between the biblical Paul versus what seems to have happened in real life? I've heard some religious authorities talking about how the Apostle Paul is this humble man who never challenged the authority of the 12 as he faithfully served Jesus. I would contend we have a much different attitude with his saying that he receives all his knowledge directly from Revelation, as it says at least in a couple of epistles. Galatians chapter 1 being a biggie. Uh, further, I believe some view that Paul would not have even been contemporary to the Twelve, however many of them were real people. What is there in the text to show that Paul was contemporary with the early church? There seems to be a great disconnect between the two, except for some forced connections, perhaps in Acts. Austino, I think you're right. Um, uh, it's, of course, the question of, uh, was Paul contemporary with the Twelve uh, could also be raised in the form were the Pauline, quote-unquote, epistles written later than the earliest generation of Christians, whether by a historical Paul or someone else? Uh, my uh, answer sort of is predicated on some of what I, I know are highly controversial opinions, but I think the historical Paul was Simon Magus, who is attested in Josephus, as well as the Book of Acts, which, however, splits the character into two to uh, uh, make a villain out of the Paul that Gnostics and Marcionites liked, and they this one they called uh, Simon, and uh, and then Paul, the good old uh, Catholic Christian apostle, uh, who is sort of a uh, second-rate apostle, uh, but still a, a hero just as good as Peter. There's a kind of balancing act going on there politically uh, in Acts, uh, and. Uh, but uh, the who knows when the heck the epistles or the book of Acts uh, were written, right? I mean, all there's a real good chance all of them are from the second century. Uh, the 
beginning of Galatians seems to be a later addition to that epistle, which is responding and to directly to uh, the uh, Acts account of Paul, where he says, "Hey, I when I uh, when God revealed His Son in me, uh, I did not go see uh, any other apostles. I made a beeline for the Arabian desert or from Nabatea or whatever he, he means." And he says, and "Then years later, I went and met a." couple of the big wigs, uh, only two. And then years after that, I, I met uh, uh, the great triumvirate of Cephas, James, and John. Uh, and now they're not the 12, uh, right? He says they are esteemed to be the pillars, the so-called pillars of the church. Well, does he ever even mention the 12? Well, in one place in the Pauline epistles, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, where it gives that list of resurrection appearances, and it says he appeared to um, Peter or Cephas and the 12. Uh, well, as you may know, I've written uh, on this uh, how how uh, uh, several scholars for a long time have recognized this as an interpolation into the letter, not an original part of it. And if that is so, then uh, we don't really know if uh, if the writer of the Pauline epistles, uh, Simon, Paul, Marcion, whoever, uh, knew about the twelve. Uh, and uh, they don't really exist in the Pauline corpus except that one place, which originally, you know, didn't really belong to it. Uh, but what is the deal? I'm about to write a book called Judaizing Jesus, where I say, uh, let's assume there was an early Jewish Christian movement that was identical with the Dead Sea Scrolls community, as uh, as Robert Eisenman and others have argued for a good while, and that they had, as the Dead Sea Scrolls attest, uh, an, a council of 12 who ran the show, and that there was also a, a higher group of three and uh, that's one of the things that makes you wonder if they were indeed the New Testament church or the so-called Jerusalem church. And let's assume that a guy uh, is, who was, nobody is actually named in the scrolls, but there are all sorts of nicknames and cipher names. And we read of a, uh, a character called the mocker or the found of, or the, uh, uh, the, uh, spouter of lies who betrayed the covenant from within the community and uh, then and and what he was doing that was so bad was to offer membership to apparently the gentiles who who are called the simple ones of Ephraim and uh, that uh, his enemies in the community including the teacher of righteousness whom some say like Eisenman was James the Just, the so-called brother of Jesus, and one of the pillars that uh, he kicked him out. Well, this, uh, and then he went on to found his own sect, uh, and this uh, connects up with uh, another account of the pseudo-Clementines of Simon Magus and Docythius having an argument, a succession dispute to see who would take over when John the Baptist died. And uh, he was connected with the uh, 
the Qumran sect and so forth. Uh, and my guess is that uh, this is all um, different versions of the story in Acts where um, Simon Magus applies for apostleship. He's going to buy his way in. Uh, I'll pay you to tell me how to lay hands on the converts and have them speak in tongues, etc. And and he says, uh, get the hell out of here. He says, literally, whereas J.B. Phillips translates it, to hell with you and your money, because you thought you could buy the gift of God and so on. Uh, well, that uh, that's another one, a version of what we read about in Galatians, the uh, split between um, uh, the men from James and Peter and Barnabas on the one hand and Paul on the other. And again, the topic was uh, the... Uh, can you allow Gentiles to become uh, Christians without making them keep the whole Torah, uh, the dietary laws, etc.? I think all of these are reflections of the same event, reverberations of the same explosion, uh, and that uh, because you really and and that years later, when the Jerusalem Church was uh, going bankrupt because of the policies we read about in Acts and in the Dead Sea Scrolls about pooling your funds and goods and all that. Well, it's like socialism. It's going to make everybody impoverished. As Margaret Thatcher said, uh, the trouble with socialism is that uh, that eventually other people's money runs out. Well, yeah. And uh, so what do we read in Galatians? That the pillars were willing to recognize the apostolic ministry of Paul uh, if he would get his considerably larger uh, membership uh, to uh, to collect money annually, I guess, for the benefit of the Jerusalem church, the poor, which is what the Ebionites were called, Ebionim, uh, and uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls sect called themselves that as well. Uh, and so that um, uh, if there was a reconciliation eventually reached on that basis. But then uh, the, the Jewish Christians uh, um, reneged on it, and that's where you get uh, the polemics in Second Corinthians and Galatians and so on between uh, Paul and the so-called super-apostles. Now, you, you have to picture something of that gravity to account for the oddity you have that you point out. Uh, if you have the Christ-ordained 12 apostles who went out to all the nations and preached to the cannibals and the, the philosophers and everybody you can think of, why do you need Paul? Where, where does Paul come in? Like he's coming in out of left field. Uh, I've heard people muse over the question of, well, if Christ really wanted Paul as an apostle, as he obviously did, mustn't he have intended for Paul to be elected the 12th apostle to replace Judas? What, did the, the other guys jump the gun by electing Matthias instead? Was that a mistake? I mean, it's surprising. Fundamentalists who entertain these theories would dare say that because you don't want to admit 
admit, like Catholics don't want to admit that the people that nominated and voted for a new pope might have just made a mistake because that implies it's just a bunch of people uh Debating something and voting on it. Oh no, no! Uh, they're the uh, the mouthpiece of the will of God. So it's it's the problem must be pretty big if even conservatives, some of them, are willing to go that far to solve it. But I I, I think the answer has to be something like I outlined there that Paul is doing his own thing, and the 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 twelve are uh, you know he, he hasn't ever heard of them. Who the heck are they? And uh, and yet they cannot simply write off Paul as a heretic anymore because most of the Christianoi are his. So I think uh, something like that happened, especially since Paulinist Christianity and the earliest Pauline, quote-unquote, Christians we know of were Gnostics and Marcionites, uh, they had a whole different idea of Jesus and his importance, right? For them, Jesus was a heavenly being, a son of God who died for the sins of people and all this. Uh, in in Jewish Christianity, Jesus is HaMashiach, uh, the Messiah descended from David, and, and so on. And uh, just imagine Jewish Christian missionaries taking that glad tiding to Gentiles in the Mediterranean world. Oh, I got great news for you, brother. Uh, God sent the Messiah of Judea. What? Uh, well, that's good for you, I guess. I mean, it's as if you, you were... You, you were going around saying, hey, everybody, uh, they've just uh, enthroned a new prince of Liechtenstein. What? What is that? Well, where is it on the map? I mean, there's just no way uh, Gentiles would uh, be even interested in, in good news like that, right? Uh, maybe diaspora Jews, but uh, the, the, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. What are they going to care about this? Well, it's no surprise that in the, the Pauline letters, that is not how Jesus is portrayed. Sure, the, the word Christ comes up, but it's used as a title whenever it occurs, and that's plenty of time. I'm, I'm sorry, it's used as a name, basically. Uh, originally a title, but used here as a name, the anointed one. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, there's one single passage, and it's in Romans, where uh, Paul speaks of Christ or the Christ, but all proper names had definite articles. So, you know, every time you read Jesus in Greek, it's Ho Jesus, the Jesus, and Ho, Ho Petros, the Peter, and so on. We, we just don't do it that way in English. Well, um, so when Christ is mentioned, it's always Ho Christos. Now, you could translate that, you could read that as either the Christ, the Messiah, the title of God's appointed deliverer, the successor to King David, or you could just read it as Christ. And there's only one passage where it would even make any sense as meaning uh, uh the Christ. It's where he says that, uh, you know, we owe the Jews a whole lot because from them came the prophets and so on. And, and from their uh, line comes Ho Christos, Christ, or 
the Christ. But that's the only place where it even might make sense. And there, I think it's really a toss-up. And in context, it probably isn't even that. Uh, So yeah, I think there is a huge difference here. Uh, Paul is uh, used to be called, still is sometimes, the second founder of Christianity. But I think he really had something else that became part of Christianity under a largely financial uh, accord. But anyway, uh, I know you can think of particular verses that don't seem to fit that framework, but it is a complicated mess, and I hope to sort it all out in Judaizing Jesus. Thank you, Ostino. Okay, Christian uh, Larocque. He says, first, why was it important that the first Christians get their message to Rome? Jews never thought thought that. Uh, also, why would the Sanhedrin press Rome to crucify Jesus on Passover? And apologists claiming they would need to take the body off the cross before the Sabbath, yet Jesus miraculously dies only six hours in instead of the days of the, the typical days of suffering. Oh boy, asked a lot of good stuff there. Um, uh, it's not absolutely clear, even in the New Testament. But you kind of get the impression that when they hatch the idea of a world mission, kind of like what the risen Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Galilee and uh, all the nations and so on, that it's sort of a symbol of that to say Christianity has to go to Rome, which is really the capital of the world, the great center of influence, and maybe it can spread from there. But Christianity first got there, apparently, um, like a lot of religion propagandists did, uh, either missionaries journeyed there, or just merchants and slaves and uh, various people that had occasion to relocate in Rome brought their religions with them, uh, according to, to both the book of Acts and uh, the epistle to the Romans. There was a church there before Paul ever darkened their door. Uh, well, who the heck were they? Well, no doubt, uh, again, merchants, soldiers, slaves who, who had uh, picked up the Christian faith and brought it with them. Uh, So uh, who knows? But it it does seem like Acts is organized to say, uh, to make the point, oh yeah, inevitably it had to go to Rome, the the real center of everything. Uh, And uh, there's a book about that uh, that uses as its title a quote from... um, Oh, I guess the Acts 27 or 28. Uh, And thus we came to Rome, uh, as if it was theologically important to do that. And uh, you can see how maybe it was. Like in Colossians, when it says, well, now, happily, the uh, gospel has been preached to all the nations. What? 
uh, that that's you know, what could you mean by that? I mean, even if Paul didn't write it and you place it some decades later, it's reached all the nations. Y- you have to wonder if they meant, well, it's cosmopolitan. Now it's even reached Rome and is spreading out. I, I don't know, but it may have had symbolic significance uh, for that reason. Maybe they're sort of looking ahead from here. It will surely spread to all uh, all the world. Uh, now, speaking of Rome and the Sanhedrin, uh, why crucify Jesus on Passover? Well, uh, the you know, it says in the Synoptic Gospels, they didn't want to crucify Jesus on Passover uh, because there, there were a whole lot of people in the city, uh, like two or three times the normal population, because pilgrims had come there from all over uh, Palestine. And uh, they said, uh, this guy's got a lot of fans. Uh, we could have rioting uh, if uh, we uh, had him publicly arrested. So let's do some sneaking around and nab him in the middle of the night before anybody has a chance to react. But uh, then Judas says, oh, you don't need to bother with that. I can tell, I can take you to his uh, his hideout. And I said, well, all right. So they, they do. Well, what still, what was the urgency? Probably because uh, Rome and therefore Pilate was always uh, anxious when there were these the three big festivals when Jews would pack into the city for the observances because especially on Passover uh, they uh, even today at Passover seders they say well next year in Jerusalem uh, they figured maybe the the Messiah would come whatever year but to coincide with Passover in that year. After all, Passover marked the liberation of uh, Israelites from Egypt. Maybe history would repeat it itself. And, and uh, so that, uh, that they, people, the, the Sanhedrin figured there, I mean, listen to the, that mob outside, hail King of the Jews. Uh, and like in John chapter 12, I think, uh, the high priest says, you don't seem to recognize the gravity of the situation, brethren. If we don't do anything about this, uh, the crowd will make this guy king. Not that it would work, but you know they'll make the attempt. And then the Romans will say, okay, we've had enough of that. Uh, Caesar is the, the king of the Jews. Uh, and uh, that they would uh, perhaps... Uh, have another massacre uh, and and attack and destroy the temple. It had been done before. Uh, and so, uh, is it Caiaphas, I think, who says, look, it's better that one guy get killed. Uh, it's not the best thing, right? But it's better that than have a massacre and have the temple uh, and our priesthood destroyed. Well, yeah, so that's why Passover was the most dangerous, but therefore most uh, uh, oh, what would you say the the uh, opportune time, uh, and so I think that's that's what makes sense of that. Now, uh, it does say in the Gospels that they, you know, when it says they had to break the legs of the uh, crucified men who were still alive to hasten their death because then they couldn't uh, arch their back and hoist up their lungs to breathe anymore and they would just asphyxiate. Uh, well, um, 
they found it wasn't necessary to do that with Jesus because surprisingly, after six hours, he was dead already. Now, I have to admit, I find it a little problematic to think that their custom was to give a break, no pun intended, to the people that hadn't died yet. I mean, wasn't it, as you say, supposed to take days to, to kill somebody in this horrible manner? Uh, why would they do that? Uh, and uh, so I'm not so sure, but the Gospels depict the Romans as having sufficient respect for Jewish law uh, to to honor the, the custom that, okay, you, you can't leave a crucified man up there beyond uh, sunset of the day he's crucified. Because in the Old Testament, they did crucify people, but it wasn't uh, to kill them, they were they were killed already, but the body was placed on a cross or a tree or whatever uh, to tell people, "Hey, this is what happens to people that break the law. Uh, take a lesson." And uh, so, in that case, they were put up dead, and so you didn't have the same consideration about taking them down before uh, sundown. Uh, it wouldn't defeat the object of crucifixion, which Roman crucifixion, again, as you say, was to kill in a slow and cruel manner. Now, why did Jesus uh, die only after six hours? Uh, Oh boy, thereby hangs a tale. Uh, I think that an, an earlier version of the story, somehow embedded in all four Gospels, uh, had Jesus survived the cross, and that whoever gave him that palliative, that uh, soporific, uh, to dull the pain, or the vinegar, or whatever you want to call it, that uh, that knocked him out, and uh, he he was he looked dead, uh, and so they figured, well, this guy's already gone, but he wasn't. Remember when uh, Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate and says, uh, could you give me charge of the body? And Pilate says, what, he's already dead? Uh, go go verify that, and his flunkies do. Yeah, he's dead, all right. Well, okay, he's all yours. Why is that? I think that is one shoe falling, and the other is about to drop, uh, because we, in the original plot logic, he would have been buried, but but rescued in time, partly because, as in ancient uh, Hellenistic novels, someone believed to be dead would be interred um, in a, a noble person's, an aristocrat's tomb. Um, tomb robbers would have noticed that and figured, hey, I guess uh, you know, old uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Mr. Moneybags, he must have finally died. And uh, so he's in there with all kinds of funerary goodies, bags of gold, who knows what all, like the pharaohs. Right, let's break in when nobody's looking and, and steal the stuff. Well, that's why Matthew quotes Isaiah to say he was buried with a rich man in his tomb. Well, that's, uh, that preserves the motivation of those who opened the tomb and stole the body. It wasn't 
uh, the disciples. Uh, but in in the gospel version, the uh, t- would-be tomb robbers were scared out of their wits when Jesus happened to be coming around, coming out of the coma, and they beat it. Uh, and uh, and uh, so then uh, the mourners came and found him alive, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, I think uh, that is a—I'm not saying that's what actually happened to Jesus, right? I tend to be a mythicist, but I think this uh, novelistic treatment of the Jesus character underlies the the passion and resurrection narratives of the Gospels, so the, the, the short time on the cross is an integral element of that uh, plot. So thank you, Christian. All right, now, who's next? Uh, my pal, Zvonimir Brakalo. He says, uh, I think he's from Bulgaria, I forget, but somewhere over there in one of those great countries. Um, you know, one of the great things about the fall of uh, East European communism is that all those countries with their architecture and their folklore and uh, their history came back into daylight again. Anyway, uh, he says, everyone is familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, but I found something similar in another place. In the Odes of Solomon, Ode 31 has Jesus speaking thus. Come forth, ye that have been afflicted, and receive joy, and possess yourselves through grace, and take unto you immortal life, etc. Is it possible that the Odes of Solomon, which are dated from the 1st to the 2nd century, and the Gospels are both uh, inspired by the Q source? I wouldn't be that specific, Zvonimir. It it, it seems to me that... uh, You've got all sorts of sources used and gleaned, gleaned from uh, by the the sort the compilers of uh, the New Testament books. For instance, I think that Q1, you know, many scholars divide Q into three strata, one, two, and three, and that the first strata, uh, Burton Max says the first stratum um makes Jesus sound like one of the cynic philosophers like Diogenes or Antisthenes etc uh, and uh, it starts getting more theological and eschatological and Jewish in Q levels 2 and 3 well i i go along with that only i think uh the connection with Jesus is secondary i think Q1 simply was a collection of cynic sayings and Christians kind of liked them. There were a lot of similarities between Christianity and cynicism. And so uh, some Christians decided, hey, I bet Jesus said this. Originally unattributed, just a bunch of wise sayings said, hey, I bet you it's Jesus. Let's say it is. Uh, and uh, so that uh, that comes from a non-Christian source. And it's possible the Odes of Solomon do too. Uh, who is it who's supposed to be speaking in the wisdom of Solomon? If it was Christians, why is it attributed to Solomon? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was some other kind of mystical Jews. Uh, hard to say. Uh, and and it's been appropriated by Gnostic uh, Christians. So I, I don't see enough uh, uh, 
continuity here. I mean, you're you're thinking of the Beatitudes, right? Where um, uh, blessed are you when you're persecuted, etc. Uh, leap for joy. The wording isn't that uh, close, and the sentiment is is not so unique. But you're right; it certainly is a parallel. Uh, the the odes of Solomon are really fascinating. I need to do more study of them. Glad you're doing them. Uh, okay, oh, here's another one from Zvonimir. He says, uh, "Wait a minute. Oh, wait a second. I'm just uh, making a scrolling." error here uh this is no this next one is uh let me enlarge this so i can read the darn thing boy i'm really losing it uh sight wise okay oh master of forgotten knowledge <laughs> most of it i've forgotten um i have a few questions today mostly prompted by my brief journey into the wonderland of apocrypha oh boy first of all what was the early christian attitude towards slavery it's mostly prompted by the information that in one of the apocryphal acts saint thomas was literally sold into <laughs> into slavery by Jesus himself, which I found very amusing. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Well, s slavery was often in the Mediterranean world not nearly as bad as it has been in some civilizations. And and we know that because there are numerous references in Greco-Roman literature that show that often... Um, house slaves were treated like members of the family and were given positions of power as the steward of the whole estate. Uh, we're told that uh, slaves could be elected to public office uh, and, and so forth. Some of the parables of Jesus have the, the master going away on a business trip and giving the uh, money to the, uh, the three slaves to invest, and he's going to see how well they did when he gets back. Uh, and so uh, slaves, and one of the healings at a distance, the centurion says to Jesus, he has a, a pice, a slave or a child. We don't even know which is which, which is it supposed to be. Uh, so it, it wasn't a, as degrading necessarily. Uh, it might have been worse in ancient Israel if that if it's really uh, describing that because a lot of the stuff there came out of Hammurabi's code which was pretty bad uh but you you could uh, sell yourself into indentured servitude uh which means I'm your employee and you can order me around uh, until I pay off this debt uh and uh so but there are these awful laws like if a master beats his servant and the servant survives it and it was still kind of serious uh okay he's got to pay a fine but if he kills the servant that's uh that's his loss he paid for the servant now he's lost him and and some of it's uh, some of it does seem pretty outrageous but it isn't necessarily bad and what it sounds like is that uh in in the acts of thomas jesus is uh sort of selling uh, Thomas as an indentured employee. Uh, 
he has to work for you now. That's the idea. There's like a Jonah vibe going on there, right? God wants him to go preach to the Ninevites, whom he hates. Uh, and uh, he says, look, you're going. I don't care what you say. If I have to call up a big fish to swallow you and take you there, you're going. And so, okay, grudgingly, he does it, right? Well, it's the same sort of thing, perhaps, because he's got to be sure sure that uh, Thomas is going to go and work for King Gundaforus in India. Actually, there were several kings named Gundaforus in India. We have co- uh, coins minted by some of them. And what happens is Thomas is a master builder, not another word you're probably thinking of. Uh, and uh, he overs- he gets a huge amount of money uh, from the king to build a big palace. And <laughs> the king shows up when it's about finished. And he says, well, where's the palace? What the hell? I gave you all that money. What'd you do with it? And he said, well, I didn't build a, a palace of earthly materials, which will perish. What do you need it for anyway? I gave all that money to the poor and the starving. Uh, and that built a palace for you uh, in heaven, right? Treasure in heaven. Uh, and But uh, he wanted Thomas to go preach in India, and he did. Now, the... Uh, Malabar Church of St. Thomas in India claims that Thomas actually did go to India to preach the gospel. They wouldn't stand by that particular story, right? But they'd say, well, that is historic and in the basis of it. Thomas did come and start our uh, our church. Uh, that's highly doubtful. All of those cl- apostolic foundation claims are very likely bogus, but uh, that's why Jesus does it. He's making sure that, that he goes. Okay. Oh, right. Here's another one. Uh, uh, what was the... Ur- oh, you looked at that one. I'm sorry. Uh, in reading various apocrypha concerning Pilate, it struck me that regardless of whether the author considered him a saint or a criminal, he's always used to underscore the evil of Jews who are always treated as the worst criminals. Am I correct in seeing him that way as a rhetorical argument that pagans are less of an enemy than Jews? Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Who is this? Oh, oh, okay, yeah, that's not... uh, That one was from uh, Boris. Yeah, okay, sorry about that. Boris, one of my favorite names. Yeah, uh, uh, what's the deal? Ultimately, yes, I think that's true. We're told a bunch of nasty tales by both Josephus and Philo about Pontius Pilate, who was a Jew baiting bastard. Uh, he was uh, an equestrian in uh, the Roman Empire and a prefect, uh, though the Gospels call him a procurator, but apparently they changed the the title somewhere along the line. Uh, And uh, he uh, didn't mind outraging and gouging Jews whenever he got the chance. Oh, this is going to offend him. (laughs) Let's do it. Uh, And uh, it was always a kind of brinkmanship thing that uh, if he'd see how far he could press Jews, and if they said, you do it, and we're going to have mass suicide, or we're going to have an agricultural strike or something like that, and you'll have nothing to send to Rome, 
damn it, okay. Uh, but sometimes, you know, he'd, he'd slaughter them. Uh, and, and you wouldn't exactly expect this guy uh, to declare somebody as a poor idiot innocent of, of these charges of being an insurrectionist, but then at the urging of a bunch of ruffians uh, in the street, uh, have this guy sent to his death while uh, sending Barabbas, uh, setting him free, a guy who was a known killer of Romans in a recent insurrection. <laughs> just is impossible. And it says that they're bullying poor Pontius uh, into doing it uh, by saying, yeah, we're going to rat on you to Rome if you let this so-called king of the Jews uh, go free. And apparently, oh, they might do it. I better not. Uh, and it, I guess anything's possible, but that just seems highly unlikely. Uh, and uh, so... What's the deal with him in the Gospels? Um, S.G.F. Brandon, who I think was really so great and so smart, he said that the Romans must have crucified Jesus as king of the Jews because he thought he was. He was uh, some sort of an anti-Roman rebel, and uh, and so they crucified him as such. Uh, but... Uh, in a generation or so after Christianity as a rebel movement declined, but it kept going as a peaceful, uh, purely religious movement, because even as a rebel movement, it must have been religiously zealous. Uh, but w when they uh, decided to calm down uh, and believed in the resurrection and all this stuff, uh, they uh, felt it was important to get out from the shadow of their nasty reputation. And so they tried to shift the blame for the death of Jesus from Rome to Jews, saying, well, yes, uh, no one can deny that the Romans crucified him. That wasn't a, uh, as I just explained before, that was not a Jewish penalty, right? They, they hanged up already dead bodies, right? This is different. Uh, they stoned people to death, right? So, uh, yeah, of course, Rome actually... Uh, crucified him. That's true, but he was simply bullied into it by the Jewish council and a bunch of ruffians whom the, they paid off to, uh, just like George Soros, paying all these people to riot. Uh, and so it was the fault of those Jews, right? And uh, this, of course, led to the horrors of Christian anti-Semitism. That looks pretty likely to me, that Jews were being scapegoated because Christians wanted to shift the blame. So I think that's uh, uh, what uh, what was going on there, that it was a rhetorical argument, I should say, a propaganda piece uh, that tried to make pagans look good, Jews look bad. Uh, uh, let me see, is this? Okay, uh, this is one from Art Comenio. It says, was Jesus assumingly, assuming he actually existed, an apocalyptic prophet or a revolutionary? Uh, are you using those, Art, as synonyms? 
uh, well, it doesn't really matter. I'll be dealing with that anyway. Like uh, often we hear that uh, Jesus was an apocalyptist, as they say, uh, that he was predicting the imminent end of all things, but that he was not trying to light the fuse on it. Uh, Albert Schweitzer and uh, Johannes Weiss argued this very effectively. Uh, their views are kind of uh, you know, locked away in the drawer uh, these days, but uh, Bart Ehrman and, and others like my late friend uh, Richard A. Arthur, um, a Jesus Seminar pal and a Unification Seminary colleague, uh, these guys both maintain the uh, Schweitzer view. Uh, and, and again, Bart certainly is convinced of it. Look at his book, uh, Jesus Apocalyptic Prophet of the, what is it, of, of the Millennium, I guess. Uh, and, uh, or was it of the New Age? My gosh, I forget. Uh, and uh, it's still a, a powerful explanation of a lot of odd sounding things in the Gospels. But According to these scholars, he was not a violent revolutionary. Now, some take a violent revolutionary to, in, in the first century context, Jewish one, uh, to be an alternative to an apocalyptic prophet because uh, there were Jews, certainly, who thought, uh, yeah, God is going to intervene and kick out the Romans and raise the dead and the whole shebang, uh, but he's not going to do it if we just sit on our butts and wait for him to do it. We have to show we're worthy of, of God's deliverance, so let's go kill some Romans. Uh, the zealots and various others uh, took that approach. You know, God helps those who help themselves. A nice proverb that isn't in the Bible, though some people seem to think it is. Anyhow, uh, so uh, so either one is an apocalyptist, uh, and there are some that uh, I, I I think Rymaris was like this, the first to write a critical life of Jesus. That yeah, that he was predicting the end of the age and all that but that he was trying to uh, overthrow the government, figuring God would come to his aid and so on. So uh, you can come up with uh, powerful arguments for that, and Brandon did, Robert Eisler did. Uh, and of course, they're ripped off by this pseudo-scholar um, Reza Aslan, uh, who's about whom the less said, uh, the, the better, pretty much a plagiarist, really. Uh, but... Uh, so there, there's. I've already said. I think both versions are viable theories, and uh, though sometimes you take Jesus to be a non-violent apocalyptic preacher, sometimes a violent revolutionary. Uh, but either one of them is certainly not implausible as a view of the historical Jesus. Okay. Um, this is Greg Miller. It says, Jason Foe, I hope I've got that right, F-O-U-X, from, oh yeah, from Dragons in Genesis, was just telling me about Russell Gamirkin's book, 
Barosis and Genesis, Manetho and Exodus. Do you know anything about the scholarly re- reception of his thesis? Do you think it holds up and we need to rethink our chronology for the documentary hypothesis? No, that's Dave Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, right. I was taking Jason Foe as the inquirer's name. No one. David Gerald. Yeah, Dave, I, he uh, convinced me hook, line, and sinker when I read that book. Uh, it is amazing. And uh, it's like, why didn't I see any of this before? Well, because most of us Bible fans have not read Barosis, who was a, uh, in the Hellenistic age, a Babylonian priest who preserved all kinds of ancient mythic lore. Uh, and uh, Manetho was an Egyptian uh, f- historian who wrote about the Exodus. And uh, traditionally, people have said, well, Manetho must have seen the book of Exodus and is summarizing it. And uh, I guess people thought that Barosis was probably summarizing some of the stories in uh, in Genesis or giving Babylonian versions of them, because as you know, there's plenty of correspondences there. But uh, Gamirkin says, no, uh, take a closer look. It really would make more sense if the the compilers of the Pentateuch got their material from these two guys. And uh, this uh, certainly does. And he says, who put this all together? Uh, He says, well, when tradition says that uh, I think it's Ptolemy Philadelphus II uh, in the third century, uh, when he summoned learned Greek-speaking Jewish scribes from Jerusalem to come to Alexandria and translate the Tanakh, the the various parts of, of the Jewish scripture, and, and into Greek, then... Uh, Gamirkin says that's only half the story. Uh, They wanted to make it sound older because antiquity always gives a halo to things. But instead, what these guys did uh, was to bring with them the various traditional sources of stories, anecdotes, law codes, etc., myths, and so on. And in committees, they put together this compromised document. And he says, "Some. What about the documentary hypothesis?" As you ask, well, uh, it's it's the only difference is. Those four documents, J, E, D, and P, uh, were did not. They were not brought to the table in the form Vellhausen saw. But he was right about you being able to tell what is J material, E material, Deuteronomic, and priestly. Uh, and uh, yeah, the you can cluster the uh, the vocabulary, the theology, the different versions of stories, uh, 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 the literary tendencies, the way characters are depicted. Yes, they cluster together and. And give you uh, the sources, but the sources were put together in one big document from four pools of tradition, and it happened when uh, the the Septuagint was supposedly translated. And uh, Gamirkin thinks that 
Well, these guys did probably put together the very first Hebrew Pentateuch and uh, the Greek version at the same time. So everybody could read it, right? And uh, that must have included the so-called Apocrypha, but uh, once uh, it got back to Palestine, the rabbis didn't like those books. Uh, and, uh, of course, they didn't like the Greek Septuagint at all. Uh, some of the apocryphal books, like Sirach, must have existed first in Hebrew, but the Hebrew was lost, Except, for, and then Sirach was recovered in recent decades. But uh, all of that, I know I'm hopelessly confusing you, but so the, the composition of the Pentateuch from however older sources would have been in the third century, Gamirkin says. Now, I take issue with, with that only insofar as I think the composition of the Pentateuch, and who knows about the rest of it, uh, was, uh, well, well, uh, probably the Deuteronomic history, maybe the whole darn thing, was uh, put together in Hasmonean times, uh, that the so-called uh, Deuteronomic reform that uh, made Judaism monotheistic and aniconic, that is, no divine images, and uh, changed a bunch of laws and centralized worship, only one central temple, that this was the result of the split between the two groups of uh, Hasidim, or Hasidians, as they say in Greek, uh, the, the Pharisees, who were originally fans of the Maccabees, and uh, the uh, Essenes, or whoever the Qumran group was, uh, because as they are described, it, it looks kind of like this ancient, wilder, more pagan-looking Israelite religion that has been suppressed, but still you can find it between the lines in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, that seems to have matched the Qumran kind of Judaism, whereas the monotheistic, etc., um, matched... Uh, the, the Pharisees. Now, where did they get some of the ideas that the others didn't have? Well, probably from Zoroastrianism, because I think Israelite religion was Persianized by Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth. So that's more than you were asking, but I, this would place the composition uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures in the second century BCE, uh, and uh, so th you know the, all, the dating of everything is up for grabs. That you'd still have to try to date the different uh, traditions. The J ones would seem to be earlier and more primitive than the uh, the E traditions, etc. But you can no longer you no longer need posit finished documents that were then stitched together. So, oh boy, what fun. Uh, American's book, uh, Plato and the Origins of the Hebrew Bible, that's another eye-opener, uh, and uh, you, you got to read that. He is, he's working on another one now, and uh, he's got all kinds of compelling theories. You know, um, Old Testament minimalists tended to say that there was no King Solomon, Right, that he's a fictional creation. Oh, maybe he's based on Alexander the Great or something. Well, that was kind of plausible. The, his empire split up on his death and so on. But Gamirkin says, no, there's, there's a plausible candidate. Uh, 
hiding in plain sight here. Everything they say about Solomon was true of the Assyrian emperor Shalmaneser III, which I think means uh, Shalman is my help. Uh, Shalman was... uh, uh, the uh, the sunset god, and so forth. He had stables, he had navies, etc., etc. This guy, you, you think we're all done with the great discoveries in biblical criticism, but luckily, no. So, gotta read that American, and what a heck of a nice guy. Uh, let's see. Oh, I've appeared on. Uh, Myth vision with him, and uh, he's terrific. <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, I'm getting kind of hoarse and a dry throat from my medicine and so forth, so I think I'll leave it at that today. In case you haven't noticed on Facebook, uh, I posted a new brief article uh, on uh, Elohim and his relation to Baal and so forth. So just kick in a buck or two or 200, 2,000, whatever, uh, and, uh, and join Patreon as a patron and you can unlock the thing and uh, uh, I'll show, I show the link for it uh, on my Facebook post about it. Uh, let's see, I will soon, well, I guess I do have a Jemmy site uh, J-E-M-I, where I and a lot of people more important than me, uh, entertainers and others, uh, have uh, this arrangement where you can, uh, I hate to say it, um, pay for having a 15-minute, 30-minute or hour conversation, uh, Zoom kind of a thing with me on whatever question you, you want. So I hope you'll take me up on that. Okay, I will see you next time on the next exciting episode of uh, The Bible Geek. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.